This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. We're joined by our friends, uh, our friend Vince Colonese. He is the executive editor at The Daily Caller. Read the latest there at thedailycaller.com. Vince, good to have you back, my friend. What's going on? It's so great to be here. Oh, not that much. Just a pretty basic week in Washington. Yeah, there's oh, some stuff That's happening. The huge, there's there's the some things that we can discuss. You know, the people yeah, are doing this stuff. Uh, let's start with this uh, this piece you've got on the Daily Caller right now. I, I think it's your, I don't know if it's your lead, or it's certainly one of the bigger pieces on the front page. Never Trump Republicans shocked they can't find jobs in Trump's White House. Now, I am in favor of the smartest, best, most experienced people possible getting very important jobs in government. Mm-hmm. However... There are a lot of people that I think fall into those categories of very smart and capable and can do these government jobs. It is one thing, and maybe this will sound self-serving because I'm kind of describing myself. It is one thing to have backed another candidate in the primary. It is one thing to have stood aside and been like, I'm not going to support Trump, but it's not my thing. But to say, to sign your name, to say you will never, ever, ever support Donald Trump or take part in his administration— to put that out there publicly and to sign your name to it and then to say, well, you know, it seems kind of unfair. I'm not getting a White House job under the Trump administration. Ah, are people serious? Uh, I, I thought never Trump meant never Trump. Yeah, no, you're right. And I don't think I don't think that there's a massive uh, upswell of those people uh, who are now chastened by the experience who are just clamoring to get jobs. Of course, you know, Washington runs like this where. You know, you want to have access, you want to make money, you want to be useful, especially if you're sort of if you're a Republican. And for a lot of these guys, thanks to a combination of polling and the national press, they sort of thought that they were betting on the safe bet, which is that Hillary Clinton will be president. There seems to be some I think I think some papers were predicting like 98 percent chance that Hillary Clinton would win the election. So for them, it wasn't that much of a risk. Oh, I'm, I'm never Trump. Oh, look, by virtue of the fact I'm, the country agrees with me, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, that didn't come through. And so as a result, a lot of people who bet on the wrong side of that equation are now basically outside of politics because they're sort of not useful now to serve a Trump administration, clearly. You know, you at one point, you had 122 supposed Republican national security leaders who said that they were committing themselves to, quote, working energetically to prevent the election of someone so utterly unfitted to the office. Pretty hard to come back from that when that's the severity of your statement, and it doesn't sound like a lot of them are even attempting to. They know that they've been chastened by this; they're going to have to sit it out for the next four to eight years. Right. I also think that, especially in the national security realm, there are a lot of very senior former officials who figure 
Hillary is pragmatic enough and centrist enough on foreign policy. And it really is a, a product of the uh, having been secretary of state. But even before yeah. that, when she was in the Senate, was trying to align herself with the foreign policy establishment, the establishment, the, the smart people on foreign policy. I think some former officials, even from Republican administrations, and that's where you get some of these never Trump Republicans signing. And this is not the never Trump journalists. I'm talking about never Trump government officials, right, the national security right. people that are saying, well, we, you know, we don't think he's fit and we don't want to work for him and we don't think that he should get the job. This, to me, is kind of like, well, if you resign from an administration because you thought it was abusing its power right before an election and then that administration won re-election, I don't think you get to show up and say, I know I resigned on principle before, but, I mean, times have changed, guys. Well, you know, the posture of especially the never Trump Republicans was always kind of curious to me because – they started so early on that they were just going to be outright opposed to the guy no matter what. And my view on this was if you think that he's actually politically inexperienced, which he clearly is, or, or policy inexper- has an experience in policy, why not try and influence somebody who seems to be a likely contender for the office? And as it went on, it became more and more clear that he was going to become the nominee. And ultimately, as it went on and he got a, was elected president, I, I just always thought that anybody who had a disagreement with Donald Trump over his policies – should have been just trying to inform the guy, be like, look, he's uneducated in this particular area. Let's educate him. There's a body of research that our think tank has produced, for instance. Why not put it in front of him or attempt to influence him in a positive direction? And there was just a lot of there was just a lot of sort of um, public displays of distaste rather than attempts at trying to inform the guy. I can just speak from my own perspective on this. If the Trump administration wanted me to come in at a senior level at the NSC or something along those lines, which this is not going to happen, it's like saying, you know, if I get drafted in the NFL. But I'm just pointing out, I would do it because I think that they need people that can do the job and know what the heck they're doing and talking about in the government. It's still our government, whether people like Trump or not, right? This is the mechanism of executive power that is going to be in place. So, but I was never, never Trump, and I wasn't a Trumper either. But those who signed their name to this, I think especially those who thought maybe they would get in to a Clinton administration, even as former Republican, you know, they're people that make the crossover. Gates, uh, I'm not sure if Hayden technically, I think he was just under Bush. But there have been some people that are kept over administrations. Maybe, maybe uh, we'll have to see what happens with with um, some of the picks that they currently have going through uh, in the Senate. But nonetheless, Mm -hmm. I also wanted to, uh, to ask you about the coverage of the inauguration. Uh, do you think there's going to be a lot of? Do you think there's going to be a lot of shenanigans? Is stuff going to get out of hand? Is it going to get violent? There's some early reporting of it, but I wonder if it's just more hyperventilating about nothing. I'm not sure it's totally hyperventilating, especially because some of the plain protesters are calling themselves anarchists. I mean, these guys are not coming in to foment sort of peaceful debate this is i mean there's genuinely people who've already they don't want to give a lecture on the mall about jeffersonian democracy i'm shocked yeah, precisely precisely no they're, they're already, they've already promised lawlessness and as a result it doesn't take that many people committing lawlessness to cause some chaos and that includes plans to supposedly block the ingress routes into washington dc um you know if you've ever gone to dc uh, you'll know that there are a couple places where, I mean, just bridges across the Potomac that would be easy pinch points to create a lot of havoc and traffic. And those guys have already suggested that they have some intention of doing that. Um, I think. Yeah, you lie down in a few choice run. places on the Beltway, uh, as you know, Vince, and, and you'd bring D.C. in terms of traffic and movement to its knees. Yeah, and it's already happened. I mean, we saw Black Lives Matter protesters cross 395 a couple years ago. 
and create havoc uh, just by virtue of, of doing a traffic protest, which was crippling. So it could happen. And I think the national, you know, the Secret Service is in charge. This is a national security event. They're running security for the entire city, then working with all the agencies. And they're going to do their best to ensure the various levels of security from everything from the, you know, the pre- the dignitaries who are there, the president-elect, of course, um, and then beyond that, the people who are inside the security perimeter and attending the, the inauguration. And then outside of that, who knows? It's very difficult to to stop someone from creating a bit of chaos. Our hope is, of course, that um, things go really smoothly. But there are people that are hoping to detract from this and, and people who are very upset about the election of Donald Trump. You at The Daily Caller are but a few blocks away from the White House. I've very, uh, very kindly been taken through your office. You guys are right there. So I, I know that you yeah. are, are going to feel whatever's happening down in the inauguration down in D.C. for all of this. You'll be right in the thick of it. Are, are you following any groups in particular or is there anything that's, that's uh, especially troubling about some of the reporting you guys are seeing about what's going to happen on inauguration? Only, like I said, only that the the anarchist groups have heard rumors of things like you know cementing their arms in PVC pipes to make sure that they can create human barriers, but just ridiculous things. Um, you know, we've got the women's march that happens the day after the inauguration that we've been paying attention to. One of the more interesting storylines from that is that there was actually a pro-life feminist group who was signed on as a participating member of this women's march. Well, they've been booted now because they're pro-life. The group has decided that no pro-life women are actually permitted to identify with this march on Washington, which is the whole most hilarious, exclusive thing that could possibly happen for a group that's supposed to be inclusive, and that's what they're supposedly marching for. But no, you can't be pro-life and be a part of a women's march on Washington, apparently. So if you are uh, someone who believes you're a woman and are transitioning, you're welcome at the women's march. But if you are a woman who is pro-life, you are not welcome at the women's march. Women's Definitely. march, right? yeah. Um, you've got to be. Should... You've got to identify as. You've got to identify as a woman, and you've got to support abortion. Those are the, them's the rules. Follow them. I also want to ask you about the inaug- I mean, the uh, confirmation uh, fights that some say are looming right now. Are any of these? Uh, we've got what um, Betsy DeVos, Representative Tom Price, and Steve Mnuchin. Mm-hmm. Uh, are any of these you think going to get particularly contentious? I don't think I, – I mean the most contentious hearings that we sort of predicted were the ones that took place last week. And there was Rex Tillerson and Jeff Sessions. These other names, you know, especially given the fact that Republicans had run the table here and, don't, and won't really have a problem uh, getting the votes to get anybody through, it seems like whatever flourishes we're going to see inside the nomination uh, hearing isn't really not going to change the outcome. All these guys – I think we'll make it through. The question mark that I had was on Rex Tillerson because Marco Rubio was expressing his distaste with him. But Rubio, who we still don't know how he's going to vote, would need to get the support of two other Republicans in order to stop the tiebreak vote from Mike Pence, right? So he would have had to get somebody like Lindsey Graham and John McCain. Well, in the last 24 hours, John McCain has said that he's leaning towards Rex Tillerson now. So it seems unlikely that even Tillerson is going to be stopped, and he was the most likely to face problems if Marco Rubio could 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 marshal some support against him, and it, that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Anything else you're working on in the Daily Caller you want to direct people to? Just giving Vince the floor here in the Freedom Hut. Sure, of course. It's tonight from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. If you uh, want to jump on, on Facebook and check out the Daily Caller's Facebook page, we are going to be running – 
Facebook Live interviews with a ton of great guests because we're uh, uh, getting ready for the inauguration. We're sort of having a Welcome to Washington event this evening. And in the process, uh, we'll be speaking to a bunch of people. Um, let me see here. I'm pulling up my list right now. I, of, of the confirmed guests, you know, the Heritage Foundation is, is really re- involved in writing is going to be involved, I think, in writing many of the country's policies going forward. Because, again, like I said, there's sort of a policy that Senator Jim DeMint runs the Heritage Foundation, and he'll be sitting with us live. The head of the House Freedom Caucus will be sitting with us, Representative Mark Meadows. Can they keep government limited in the age of Trump? We'll be asking him. Uh, Roger Stone, of course, the infamous Roger Stone, he'll be sitting with us as well and, to, and talking. Foster Freeze, he's a Republican mega donor and one of Trump's biggest supporters. And then uh, we may have some surprise guests from the inauguration and the Trump administration. We're still working out some of the details. But from 7 to 10 p.m. tonight on Facebook, check out the Daily Caller's Facebook page. I promise it will be interesting, and we'll ask very Daily Caller-esque questions. Vince, how, by the way, we've been asking this. I know I like to say Colleonese because, you know, it's that's the Italian pronunciation. How do you say right. your name? I'm sorry. Well, the family says it Colonnese. I know we say it incorrectly, but we've all sort of just said Colonnese throughout the years. So that's the one we go by. That's our, okay, colonnades. From now on, we'll do col- we'll do colonnades until you tell me that. This is the way we filter out telemarketers, actually. There you go. All right. <laughs> Vince Colonnades of The Daily Caller. Great to have you, sir. He's the executive editor there. Check out the latest at dailycaller.com. Vince, have a, uh, a safe and enjoyable inauguration. Talk to you soon. It's going to be great. Thanks, Buck. And team, uh, phone lines are open here, 888-900-3393. Don't leave me alone in the hut. I'm in here solo right now. Give me a call. Be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, when we're going to bring the country together, when we're going to try to find a voice of reason and wisdom, when we need somebody whose credibility is beyond reproach, whose wisdom needs no explanation or celebration from me, of course. Of course, the American people turn to Al Sharpton. This is what he had to say on his, was it on MSNBC or I don't know where he said it. He was on TV and this is what he said about Trump and legitimacy and the election. Play it. There's no question that the process that elected him was not legitimate. When you look at the now evidence from the intelligence agencies that there was the influence from the Russians, clearly the process has serious questions about it. I remember, because it was but a few months ago, when 
there was this frenzy about whether Donald Trump would accept the results of the election. And by saying that he would have to see what they were, he was undermining democracy. Now you have and look, Al Sharpton, while you and I may not take him seriously, was a Democrat presidential candidate, uh, is treated with reverence by the entire Democrat establishment is treated with reverence by most of the media. So this isn't, we're not finding some random internet troll. We're going to a celebrated prominent Democrat with Al Sharpton, and he's now saying that the whole process was not legitimate. I remember when the initial reports came out about Russia hacking Podesta, and and by the way, I shouldn't even say that, when the media started to seize upon this, to create more out of this, which was after Hillary lost, of course, I was one of the last times. I don't. I don't know if I'll ever be back on uh, some of the panels they used to have me on at CNN because I think they know now that that I am a a free agent. Uh, that they will be dealing with a different kind of participant in those debates. Perhaps it'd be more interesting for all the viewers, but there is an agenda over there, and I don't fit into it. Uh, that nobody was saying it was illegitimate. We just needed bipartisan investigation. Do you remember that? You can go back and see it. You can see the most prominent national security reporters and journalists and pundits in the country who are left or center left, which is really the same thing. You can see them all saying that this was about a bipartisan investigation. This is about national security. It wasn't about delegitimizing Trump. I said, no, no, this really is. First, you want to establish a, 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 a an exaggerated fact pattern or a falsified fact pattern, and then you want the conclusions to flow from it. But this is the conclusion you're hoping people will draw. Now they openly say it. Now it's out there. So we all knew this was coming. This is why I was fighting back against responding to intelligence community leaks, because the leaks were the, the, the thing about some of the early leaks. They allowed the, the Democrats to construct as damaging a narrative as they want, because it was, well, we've just heard this from an unnamed source. We'll have to see how truthful it is. But let's assume it's truthful. And then they just run with it. You've seen BuzzFeed and, in its own way, CNN get in on this game. I think more people have come over to my side of this, by the way, including on the right, that CNN reporting on the inclusion of an unsourced, unclassified document in an intelligence briefing is only news insofar as the implication is that it must be real and important then because they weren't in that room, so they don't know and they can't verify anything. So it's only news because... The insinuation is that this means that there's something to it. But Sharpton saying that the process that elected Trump was not legitimate. You've had many others going on TV recently and saying it was not legitimate. This is this is a, a forcing a real political crisis in this country if they continue. Because what is not permissible in a, in a in a U.S. where the president is not really the president? This takes us down a very dangerous path, and they want to take us down this path, it seems. Those who are saying this is just like Obama, no, opposing someone's political agenda is not the same as delegitimizing the election and the power that the commander-in-chief wields in and of itself. That's not the same thing. And it should also be noted that Barack Obama came into office with incredibly high approval ratings because of the media construct of how great he was and everything, but I digress. With both houses uh, or with both sides of the Congress in Democrat hands. And nobody was saying that he wasn't really the president. 
those were saying he wasn't born in this country, were a fringe minority, and nobody was saying that the election was a sham or a scam. This is very different. And people who try to draw an equivalency are, once again, either liars or morons. It's a false equivalency. This is uncharted territory. When you have the entirety of the media industrial complex stating or insinuating, stating or implying that Donald Trump, who is about to become president officially, is not really the president, this is going to lead to absolute disaster down the line, uh, politically and hopefully not more than that, uh, based upon what they're saying. Rhetoric has power. Rhetoric matters, and they know it. More coming. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we haven't gone deep on national security in a little bit, so let's get into it with a buck brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the buck brief. Michael Pregent joins us now. He's an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's a senior Middle East analyst and a former adjunct lecturer for the College of International Security Affairs. Uh, He is executive director of Vets Against the Deal, and uh, you can learn more about him at Hudson.org. Michael, great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me, Buck. How are you? Good. Uh, We wanted you to update us. We haven't talked about Mosul, I think, once in the new year so far. What is going on with the Iraqi government's efforts to retake that city from the Islamic State? Well, we'll start with the contrast between what the Iraqi government is saying and what U.S. the U.S. commander on the ground is saying, and that's General Townsend. Um, the Iraqis are saying they can liberate Mosul in three months, and U.S. commanders are saying it's going to take two years. I would go with the U.S. commanders. Um, there's been uh, there's been some some movement on the east side of Mosul, but the Iraqi security forces temporarily hold about a sixth of the city. And uh, they're doing it with the federal police, and the Iraqi federal police are heavily controlled by one of Iran's premier militia groups, that's the Barda Corps, and they are not the right force to secure and hold territory in East Mosul or, or West Mosul, for that matter. And so the, the this whole operation is supposed to wrap up or supposed to be completed in terms of the the clear, not necessarily the whole part of it. By when? I mean, do we do we have any real sense of that? Well, I think the sense the sense that I have right now, just based on talking to people and based on visiting the area, is that things have slowed down. U.S. military commanders are in no rush to do too much in Mosul right now because there's a new national security team coming in. Very happy about General Mattis coming in because Mattis will give the U.S. military the resources it needs to actually defeat ISIS. And both General Mattis and General Flynn have stated that the the most important component in defeating a Sunni terrorist army like ISIS is with Sunni manpower and Sunni intelligence, two things that have not been drawn upon since the beginning of this operation in 2014 to clear ISIS out of Iraq. 
And it looks like they are going to be in what kind of a position politically in Iraq? When when the dust settles here, is this a big win for the Abadi government? Is this going to result in sectarian squabbling over what remains in and around Mosul and its environs? Where do you see all that going? Well, there's, there are elections in 2018. So if Mosul is cleared by then and we continue to use this low benchmark for what success looks like, that's rubbling a city, exiting a population, and declaring ISIS defeated, then they stand to do well in, in elections in Baghdad in the Shia areas. So that would be good for the Abadi government. What's good for the Abadi government is not necessarily good for Iraq. Um, the majority of the country is Shia until you get north of Baghdad, then it becomes majority Sunni. And there are not Sunni forces being built to keep the next form of ISIS out to defeat this current version of ISIS. So I'm less optimistic. I think that ISIS, I think it's about two years, and I think defeating ISIS needs to be uh, drawn. The lessons of the surge need to be used here. You, You can't defeat ISIS unless the people are empowered to reject it, meaning the Sunni people of Iraq, and, and those efforts haven't been made yet. If I could get you some time sitting down in the Oval Office with uh, the Trump, soon-to-be Trump administration, just a matter of days here, and the National Security uh, Advisor Flynn and, and some of the top military, uh, top military brass on Iraq, what would you want to what would you want to say to them? What would you tell President? We call him President Elect for a couple more days. Uh, right. Soon to be President Trump about what the U.S policy, what U.S. posture should be in Iraq in 2017 and beyond? Well, the first thing I would recommend is that we slow down the Mosul operation and make it an intelligence-driven operation, meaning that we recruit Sunni sources, we build a Sunni force using uh, embedding U.S. advisors and special operations and intelligence with those assets and have them take the city back from ISIS. Again, You have 1 million Sunnis in Mosul. 300,000 of them are military-aged males. There are 4,000 to 6,000 ISIS fighters. There are probably less now since these operations began. This is the perfect time to slow it down, make it an intelligence-driven operation, empower Sunnis from Mosul to take it back by making them collectors, the eyes and ears, and then putting them back into the Iraqi military uh, where they can actually uh, hold secure, and reject the next version of ISIS. And how's it going on the Syrian side of the border? I'm sure that that must come into play when we're talking about Mosul. We know that the, the connection across the border into Syria was something that they tried to sever between ISIS, ISIS in Mosul and ISIS over on the Syrian side and in Raqqa, their de facto capital city. Is, is there real progress as you see it being made against ISIS in Syria too? And, and how does that affect what the Iraqis think is possible for stabilizing the north of the country, including Mosul, going forward? Well, as we look at Syria, we, you know, we're, the United States is going to be invited in to discussions with Russia, Iran, Assad, and Turkey. Instead of us leading this effort, we are actually being invited in as a participant. So that's very telling about the Syria situation. There's a lot of... Uh, there's there's a lot of friction between Turkey and the United States when it comes to arming uh, the Kurds, the YPG, to to fight ISIS when YPG leadership and some other Kurdish elements that are opposed to, to Turkey are suggesting that after ISIS they turn their guns on Turkish forces. So that's an issue. So 
this all benefits ISIS as the United States, Russia, Iran, and Assad um, work to stop the the uh, indiscriminate targeting of Sunni civilians in Syria. ISIS continues to hold territory in Raqqa and Deir ez-Zor and continues to be able to move forces, unfortunately, into Iraq. So there is a lot that needs to be settled. And the one thing I would tell the Trump administration is that Russia, Iran, and Assad are not targeting ISIS. They're targeting the Sunni population in Syria. And Russia is not, has not proven itself an ally against, uh, in the fight against ISIS at this point. Mattis would say as that a as former well. military intelligence officer, Mike, what do you think about U.S. U.S. diplomacy with Russia under a Trump administration? Where should, how do you see it going, and where do you think it should go? Well, the, well, the good thing about what Trump has done is with the selection of Madison Flynn. And, you know, even though people say that General Flynn is somehow pro-Russia, and I don't believe that for a second. We both uh, grew up in the army where our main geopolitical foe was the Soviet Union, and then the post-Soviet Union after 1988. So with Madison Flynn there, I think they are very skeptical skeptical and against Russian aggressions. Uh, I think it's still good at the diplomatic level, State Department and with the president, to, to do outreach with Russia as long as your Secretary of Defense and your intelligence uh, directors and, and those involved in national security <clears throat> that look at Russia as an adversary uh, are able to pound the desk, and I believe that that's going to be the case. I like that Trump's not surrounding himself with like-minded individuals. They're not a bunch of yes-men. There will be no echo chamber. Uh, Madison Flynn have proven themselves in the past to be desk pounders when they disagree with a commander-in-chief, so I'm very happy with, with the team of rivals that he's put together so far. Michael Pregen is an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute. You can learn more about what he does and his uh, writing and analysis at Hudson.org and also M.P. Pregent, P-R-E-G-E-N-T on Twitter. Michael, always great to have you, man. Thanks for calling in. Hey, thanks, Buck. Appreciate it. Uh, team, we're going to be back right on the flip side of this break. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. On the Syrian side of the ISIS equation, I wanted to point out that there are some there's some reporting, USA Today and, and others, uh, talking about how the Air Force, U.S. Air Force, is doing these airdrops of weapon ammo and, and equipment to opposition forces in Syria that are trying to close in on. Raqqa, which is the capital of the Islamic State, and I think do we have to keep saying de facto capital? I just I think we can just say capital. I don't think anyone's going to be too offended. Um, but the air force is giving them essential supplies, so we're doing airdrops for ground forces, uh, ground forces that are a, a, in part of a U.S.-led coalition of about forty-five thousand fighters, along with U.S. special forces on the ground, and. They're trying to change the composition of this team um, because they want it to be at least more Arab than it's been because it has been a primarily Kurdish venture, and that makes the Turks very uneasy. 
and you also want the ability to have Arabs patrolling the streets in Arab-majority areas of Syria, once notably Raqqa and the surrounding, uh, surrounding desert, um, once they take this territory, you want to have an Arab force there to maintain its stability. But I find this all very interesting because here we are in the very last days of the Obama administration. And I think we can all take a deep breath and, and enjoy that in one way or another. Just sort of whew, let that sink in. But I recall quite vividly the details of the debates over what should be done in response to the Islamic State. What steps the Obama administration should take. And there was a lot of uh, arrogance with the Democrats that were in the White House and with Obama and his top circle that they weren't the Bush administration. They were going to be smarter than the Bush administration. They weren't going to make foolish mistakes. And, oh, by the way, uh, they also were going to make sure that they avoided a quagmire. I think, uh, what's his, uh, not not Jay Carney, I think... Um, uh, Josh Ernest has come out and said something along those lines in the last day or so, that avoiding quagmire was a primary foreign policy goal of this administration. And that then led to this attitude that, well, we're not going to get too involved in Syria. And I would go on, and I'm going to keep referring to CNN now, I'd go on CNN and say, you know, the administration is late with all of its actions in Syria, and minimal with all of its actions in Syria. And that puts everything that it does at a disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis what they could be. And you'd have pseudo-intellectuals that would respond with, oh, but what's your what do you think they should do differently? Should we invade Syria? Should we invade Syria? You want to put 150,000 troops in the ground in Syria? U.S. troops? You want to be the ones that carry a folded flag to the family of those who are driving around in armored Humvees and rock. I mean, that was the way the argument always went. And on my side of it, we'd say, well, what about what about building an opposition force, giving it weapons and intervening in that way? What about taking a middle path? And you'd have just sneering from from the Democrat Obama enablers and Obama defenders and oh, like that's going to do anything. Oh, like your criticism, the criticisms of the Obama administration were just all partisan when it came to Syria. It was just because we didn't like Obama. It was not based in substance at all. I had former generals coming on CNN. I'd say, look, Obama's Syria policy has been has been pretty unserious. And and I don't know how anyone could make a, a, a case. Otherwise, they, they'd make the case. Oh, well, you know, I was a, I was a general, you know, I, 20 years ago in the Air Force, and I'm going to tell you exactly what's going on now. It's, okay, well, explain to me how they're taking this problem seriously and how they're taking action to stave off a disaster, which has now hit, which is 500,000 people killed. Now Obama's doing, and this is the ultimate point that I wanted to make with all of this, now Obama is doing, while he is in office, exactly what Critics of administration policy in Syria recommended he do years ago. So the Obama administration is doing what administration critics were suggesting they should do back in 2012, 2013, 2014, And they're just going to do it as they're leaving office. I, I wonder if those of us who had to sit around and be 
mocked or laughed at or derided by Obama's little sycophants in the media get to, to get to point out that this is the administration more or less admitting that we were right all along, that their complete hands-off, let's leave this to the U.N. policy, would be a joke if it wasn't so tragic, that the removal of chemical weapons that John Kerry negotiated was meaningless, that chemical weapons were used anyway, that the destabilizing influence of ISIS as a beacon for jihad all over the world was allowed to grow and to spread, and that this has resulted in major terrorist attacks in Europe and, yes, here in America, that will have profound implications for politics in the EU and I think for here at home as well, but certainly in the EU, along with the refugee crisis that was created by all of this. And now in the last days, we're seeing these reports about the Syrian uh, the Syrian Democratic forces that are, are pulled together along with Kurdish units trying to take back Raqqa from the Islamic State, U.S. providing air cover and airdrops and special forces on the ground alongside them, taking it back piece by piece. We, we were right all along. Or at least I should say the administration is admitting that that was the right idea, but they didn't want to admit it at the time. They didn't want to take the risk. So now they're doing it so they can say they did something, but any difficulties, any casualties, anything that happens will be on the Trump administration as this fight grows and we become more enmeshed. So Obama didn't want a quagmire for himself, but is willing to leave a quagmire for his successor. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.